This episode of the Better Two Podcast is brought to you by Kitty Mystic and DM Needham, author of My Days with the Dark Muse, as well as Love is Worth Waiting For. Hi, gang. Donna here. Thanks for tuning into the Better Two Podcast. Today's guest is Doug Hughes. Doug is kind of famous because he landed a gyrocopter on the U.S. Capitol building lawn because he had a message for Congress about campaign reform. He also has a book called flight plan, a memoir. It's based on this event. So tune in. The interview, I will say, is a little political, but it's not so political that it's not. It's all about you guys learning a lesson about reform and how we can make changes, how us as individuals can hopefully change the landscape and get money out of politics. So enjoy. When I discovered Buzzsprout, I was about 30 or 40 episodes already in, and I thought, I really think they have a lot of opportunities here and a lot of options for me to explore, but it's going to be a lot of work to move the podcast. Wrong. It was so simple. It was a click of the button and everything transferred over seamlessly. And bonus, I got a website out of it, a website that has all my social media links for the podcast and everything in there is central in one place. What, what could be more convenient? I mean, honestly, then besides that, couple of clicks of buttons and I'm on every major platform. It was simple. And you know, you want to build your audience. You want to be on every platform you can. And also the other thing was analytics. The analytics were top of the line. So if you have a podcast already and you want to move it, I would highly recommend doing it with Buzzsprout. And if you're new to the podcasting business, Buzzsprout is the way to go. And right now, if you follow the link in the show notes and tell Buzzsprout we sent you, it'll get you a $20 gift card if you sign up for our paid plan, which helps support our show. And we would greatly appreciate it. The only thing is, remember, before you freak out, if you don't get it after you get one paid month, it takes two before you get that Amazon gift card. So check Buzzsprout out. I'm sure you would be happy. And let's create something together and come over to Buzzsprout. Hi, Doug. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Well, you know, your story, when I when I started researching who you are, it was kind of fascinating because I think it's something that is, even though this happened in 2015, it's still something that we're dealing with nowadays, which is civil disobedience. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let, let's talk to the audience or you tell the audience exactly what happened. I mean, there is a clip that I watched last night about you being on John Stewart. And I have to say, I was very, and I'm sure I saw it at the time, but I'm, I'm happy to say that as, as John Stewart likes to tear things apart, he didn't really go after you. No. So. I, I, I love that clip. I have, I have sent it to people and no, it's not terribly flattering, but it's not terribly insulting either. No, no. So tell us about what happened and what led up to this event. Well, the event, which a lot of people will remember, uh, was that I landed a ultralight gyrocopter on the west lawn of the U.S. Capitol building. Um, for those of you who don't know or remember it, it looked like a flying motorcycle, okay, uh, with helicopter blades. And it's about 250 pounds dry weight. Um, I had a cargo of 535 letters, one addressed to every member of Congress, 
where I call them out on the issue of institutional corruption. Okay, legalized graft in Washington, D.C. And um, the stint was over two years in the making, which sounds like a ridiculously long time, but I didn't know how to fly when I came up with the idea. Wow. Yeah. The aircraft was, as it turned out, a disposable part of that act of civil disobedience. I never got it back, and in fact, they destroyed it which didn't surprise me at all. Um, but it was an act of civil disobedience to bring attention to the solutions of corruption in government. And it's the first thing we have to do, even though it's not the most important thing we have to do, because we have to get big money out of politics before we'll address anything else that is actually more important. If you're a person who believes that climate change is real, and if you're looking at the increasing effects of erratic and extreme weather, okay, you'll also notice we're not doing anything about it. And you will notice that big oil, the oil companies have an unlimited amount of money to legally pour into the elections to make sure they have a Congress who won't do anything that affects their bottom line. Um, if you're on a fixed income and you have a medical condition, um, you're particularly aware of the fact that we pay the most for, for drugs, for legal pharmaceuticals of any country in the world, okay? And if you pay any attention, you'll find out that this country the government pays for the research and also allows these pharmaceutical companies to have the exclusive patents and allows the pricing structure where we get gouged more than any other country in the world. Okay. And, and Congress is in on this, but you'll see that the pharmaceutical industry pours literally millions of dollars every year into lobbying in Washington, D.C. to make sure that the Congress is aware that you either protect the pharmaceutical industry or they will finance somebody to oppose you in the next election. So who am I? I'm the guy who arrived with that message, which neither political party wants you to hear. Most members of Congress don't want to hear spoken. The media fights tooth and nail not to cover, okay? Wall Street is opposed to having you here. Um, as I studied this early on, I realized I was up against virtually every organization larger than the Girl Scouts. Yeah. And, and that's gonna be quite daunting to even think to, you know, it, it goes back to, do I even matter? And by doing this, this is like taking a stand. Yes, my message was very deliberately crafted, but my motive was to prove that I do matter. I had a personal thing to prove. Um, and it was, it was essential to me that I prove to myself that I am more than just a producing, consuming entity 
in the economy, um, that, I, that I matter, that I can make a statement and possibly make a difference um, It, I, I don't know if if you've gotten into that whole part of the story. Different people have alluded to it in the coverage. Um, a little over two years before I made the flight, my adult son committed suicide by head-on collision. The driver of the other vehicle was also killed. And um, it affected me very deeply emotionally. I quite irrationally took the blame on personally. Um, I ascribe some of this to my Catholic background and upbringing, that there needs to be atonement. And my son was no longer there to confess or atone for what he had done. Um, and it, even the Catholic Church, any priest, and I'm not practicing now, would have counseled me that I could not take on what my son had done. But I, but I did, and I was in an emotional tailspin on the way to suicide. Um, now, this happened after I had gotten into researching the money and politics thing, and a friend and I were in the process of putting together a website and and so this was happening in my head when my son committed suicide. And I was committed to committing suicide when all of the avenues of promoting the opposition to big money in politics, when they were finally exhausted, I was, I was done. I was going to kill myself. Um, and this stunt in its first stages occurred to me, and, and I went, you know, like, well, that's super dangerous as far as ground-to-air missiles, uh, interception by jet fighters, you know. And I went, Doug, you're just, you've already decided you're going to commit suicide and you're worried about whether or not this is dangerous. So basically, you, in your mind, you had nothing to lose. Yeah. Now, that's the, the first part of it. Now, what happened in the ensuing two years is that the process and, and this I chronicle in my book because I, it's, it was a process of learning to fly, acquiring my gyrocopter, getting it ready for the flight, working out the logistics because I had to trailer the gyro from Florida up to the vicinity of Washington, D.C. Okay. Um, and I could not be sure of good weather when I flew, so I had to plan it and budget it over a period of a week. Okay, so that I would be able to fly when the weather permitted it. Um, and then the other aspect was messaging. Um, it, it was useless for me to do this as a stunt and get killed in the process unless the message would survive. Yeah. Then if I got killed, I got killed, but it's the win because I, I get to make the change that I wanted to change or at least make the statement that I wanted to say. And so the, putting all this together and the discipline in becoming a pilot, I became quite, quite sane and emotionally healthy, but I never lost any of my determination to do the, do the stuff. Um, 
And I found out that I was going to have to do it solo because the U.S. Secret Service was tipped off to what I was planning by my blood brother, and they visited me twice. So at that point, for the people whom I talked to about it, it became serious that it could have repercussions for them. Possibly even if I got killed, the police were going to want to try somebody and hang somebody. And so I realized I had to do the thing completely solo. Um, and this meant that I was going to have to travel alone. I'd have to be able to take the gyro off the trailer. And it meant that instead of doing it the way you usually would do it with the traveling with the blades off, I had to travel with the blades on because I, it's a two man job to set up the plane usually. Um, so I had to figure out all of it so that I did it literally solo. Wow. And I also violated my rule of secrecy in that I contacted a reporter with the Tampa Bay Times ahead of time um, so that he would have the story and he would have a copy of the letter so that if I was killed, the government couldn't say, well, we shot down a suspected terrorist and have that be the actual story of the day. I wanted the counter story of the day, whether I survived or didn't survive, to be that this was not an act of terrorism. This is an act of civil disobedience about a, some, a thing that everybody really needs to look at. You know, and that's the thing. And, and I, I am just as guilty as most people. Up until 2010, I dare I say ignorance was bliss about politics. I did not really, you know, I, I've said on the show before, when it came to politics, the I was, a, I wanted Ross Perot to win. And I know people will think I'm insane for that, but it was like Ross Perot had a different take. He was a businessman. He, he seemed to know what he was talking about with the trade agreements and everything. And other than him, I was never really gung-ho. And my husband had had cardiac bypass surgery in 2010. And the only radio station I could get to in the car while I was sitting there waiting for him to be done with cardiac rehab was progressive talk radio with Tom Hartman and Ed Schultz and Bernie Sanders used to be on there. And Bernie really had, you know, he talked about money and politics and he talked about all these things. And then I, I remembered back in like 19, early nineties, they had that movie with Paul Newman called blaze about bribery and how they took Huey Long down or, maybe not Huey, but you know who I'm talking about, the governor of Louisiana, how mm -hmm. they took him down because of bribery. But as you're sitting there, as I'm listening to this, my eyes are being open and my husband starts tuning in as well because he's listening now because I'm like, you're not going to believe this stuff. And, you know, campaign finance became a huge boilerplate on this channel. And one of the things that always amazed me was the, the counter argument about, you know, well, we need term limits. But they made a good point that if we had term limits, you're still going to have the bribery. It's not going to stop because they're just going to bribe the new guy. It's not going to change anything. And, and the fact that when our people, when our congressmen and senators are not on the House floor, they're usually dialing for dollars. You know, and nobody ever talks about that. We don't talk about the fact that they're not talking to their constituents. Well, Excuse me. They're talking to their moneyed constituents. They're not talking to the average person. Right. Let me let me go there because you've hit on 
a theme of my book, okay? Because it's useless to bring this up unless you could solve it. And this is why I wrote the book and why I made the flight to make the statement and tell anybody who would listen that there are ways that we can fix corruption in government. Um, you talked about term limits. Generally, whenever there's an open seat in Congress, okay, um, the parties know about it ahead of time. And particularly when you're talking about the House of Representatives, you're talking about 435 seats that are determined regionally, geographically. Um, and 85% of the House elections have a distinctly Republican or Democratic flair. If, if you're in Kansas, you can't find a blue district, okay? And if you're in Northern California, the Republicans are an endangered species. And there is some fooling around with that that shouldn't be done. That's called gerrymandering, but that affects only a minority of the House seats where they try and carve it to create a, a majority. But as I was looking at this, it was the natural or artificial majority in each district. That's why something like 93 or 95% of the members of the House who seek re-election get re-elected, even though there's like 15, 17% approval rating. And I went, you know, this makes no sense. These people are all always getting reelected. They're almost certain to get reelected. Okay. And then when I was studying it, I, I went, wait, why are they spending half of their work week raising money for the next election when they've got an over 90% chance of getting reelected? And it cannot be fun sitting in a cube city reading from a script on the computer in front of you, talking to somebody you don't know from from Adam, who was just on the list of donors or potential donors that the party provided for you. All right. Mm -hmm. and, this, and this was a contradiction for several years with me as I was studying this, that wait, they're, they're doing this dialing for dollars. And yet, it, it's naturally rigged. If you're a Republican in a red district, it's a shoe in. Okay. I had to get my nose rubbed in it to understand and that happened about a year before my flight um, with a guy named Eric Cantor. Yes, I know the name. Okay, Virginia 7th District. And he would have been the Speaker of the House after Boehner. He was designated to take on that job, except that he lost his election. Now, Eric Cantor was a toady for Wall Street, and he didn't even try to hide it. Um, I'm a progressive, but the Tea Party voters are very sincere about wanting government to represent them and their interests as citizens as much as progressives are. Okay, so from Virginia's 7th District, the Tea Party had tried repeatedly to approach Eric Cantor about their priorities. And he gave them the middle finger, and I think he was fairly flagrant about saying, look, I'm actually representing Wall Street, okay? We're not, I'm not from New York, but that's who I'm looking out for. And that's the way it's going to be. You people can just come along, come along and don't bother me. Mm -hmm. 
they got picked. Okay. And they organized nationally and they organized locally and they realized that they could bounce his butt, not in the general election, but in the primary. And they put up a Tea Party Republican to run against the number two guy in the U.S. House of Representatives who had won, I think, seven times. And he had a virtually infinite amount of money to spend in the election. Eric Cantor outspent a first time person in, in politics, a guy named Dave Brett, who was a university party or university professor and Tea Party all the way through. Okay. He was outspent 10 to 1, and he still lost, okay, mm-hmm. because the primary election is when the Democrat is going up against the Democrat, and the Republican in that, in that election is going up against the Republican, and it's the winner of the primary who shows up on the ballot in November, Right. okay? Well, here's the thing. Nobody goes to vote in the primary election. And the voters are preconditioned to think none of these peddling elections matter. It's the election in November that matters. Well, this is what the parties want. Mm-hmm. The parties want their hand-picked incumbent who is in office, who is reliable, which is synonymous for you and me with corrupt. Okay. They want the reliable party guy to get reelected. Okay. And so... It was what happened with Eric Cantor where my mind went boom, okay? Because if the voters got together and the Republicans in the red district selected an honest Republican who agreed on the main components of reform, of getting big money out of politics, and mind you, the voters are there. Republican voters are on board with this, okay? And so you let the Republicans select an honest Republican to replace the corrupt Republican. And the Democrats, as I said, 85% of these districts are set in stone. Mm -hmm. So the Democrats in the blue district, they find an honest Democrat to run against the crooked incumbent, okay? Now suppose this was done after reformist leaders and I know them, and I don't include myself among them. I'm talking about people who are like Harvard Law people that I came in contact with after my flight, people who came to my rescue, or I'd have been in jail for many years, okay? But I got to know the leaders in the movement after I made my flight, and these people are legal heavyweights, okay? And they have the organization. If they wrote the principles of reform, Okay, not Congress writing the principles of reform. If the people working this who understand it write it, okay, then when it's in a written form, the Tea Party would take this and say, look, this is what you have to sign on to if we're if we're gonna back you. And then and the Democrats, the progressives would take the same thing to the Democratic reformists and say, look, we'd like to back you as a reformist. And we'll help you beat the incumbent, but you got to be 100% on board with these principles that are the same ones the Republicans are running on. And we wind up taking a majority in the U.S. House of Representatives, not a Democratic majority or a Republican majority, 
but a reformist majority. I think it could happen. Well, I mean, what you're basically saying is tantamount to the whole Grover Norquist BS yeah. of sign this pledge with no new tax. Who are you? You know, I mean, but yet everybody signs off on it. Sure, because he could go ahead and take out anybody in the primary. Right. And I and I realized that, wait, this, this worked for Grover Norquist. It worked for the Tea Party. Mm -hmm. Okay. And those are... These are Republicans who are exerting their democratic power. And I'm going, you know, if the Democrats ever got smart enough to do this, we could have, the Democrats could have a good third of Congress who is reformist, which would not be enough to get anything done. Well, we need, we need a majority. We need 51% or more. And I realized this has got, this has got to involve Republicans too, for us to have enough power to get it done. Had they not painted Bernie as, you know, using the dirty word socialist, even though he is a socialist, but he's a democratic socialist, had they not used that word to smear him and he actually would have won the primary, things would have been a little different. I do believe that. But but I also am not stupid enough to know that the president is more of a figurehead than anything. Powers in Congress. That's yeah. why the lobbyists pour their money into Congress, yeah. okay? The lobbyist industry, and people talk about lobbyists, it is a $6 billion industry in Washington, D.C. per election cycle, every two years. About $6 billion every two years, and it does nothing except skew legislation one direction or the other, always working to skew the legislation to make fat cats fatter, okay? to make sure that they're not held responsible for industrial pollution that we're going to drink or breathe so that they don't have to pay taxes so that the taxpayer does pay two or three times what they would otherwise have to pay, except we're not in a free market because Congress is willing to grant monopolies in exchange for the money that gets ordered. And well, which, you know, let's go back to the 80s for a second when they broke up the bell. You know, they broke up Ma Bell because Ma Bell was too big. And, and then you have to also look at the fact that and a lot of people don't realize this. Congress is not writing those laws. There's these think tanks like ALEC. You know, they're the think tanks that create the what the business owners want and what the big money fat cats want as far as laws. But nobody ever look, talks about that. It's all about Congress. I mean, really, when you think about it, and, and I know the term shadow government, I don't like that term, and I don't know that it's true, but you gotta wonder if the Congress people are not making these laws and the laws come back to be books and they don't have time to read on it before they vote, how are we really having a fair and just government? So the name of the game is to identify and block corruption. And I identified that there are only three ways, three legal ways, that Congress is twisted by money. And I came up with something anybody can remember five minutes after this podcast or five months after this podcast, and they'll blow people away with their proficiency on knowing how corruption works. You think this before, during, and after. Before, that's campaign finance. The money that is spent 
to get somebody elected or to keep somebody from being elected. Now, we'd have to reverse Citizens United because that's the Supreme Court decision that allows unlimited yep. corporate money in elections. But that's only part of it. That would take us back to where we were when Obama was in office. Before that, the lobbying worked extremely well. And in campaign finance, it was that you could be on the phone dialing for dollars. And if you hit a home run, you would collect $10,000 in one call because that's the amount that you can get from a married couple in one call, $10,000. If they want to back you, it's $2,500 plus change for the primary, $2,500 for the general. And if you're talking about a married couple, you're talking over $10,000 for them to max out. That makes it worth a congressman's time to spend 20 or 25 hours a week on the phones raising money, okay? Now, you cut that down to only a few hundred dollars. He can't spend enough time on the phones for it to make a difference. The Congress is going to go, well, shit, I got to raise money for my next election. How am I going to do it? He's got to talk to large numbers of people in his home district. He's got to start listening to people. I mean, democracy could break out. Well, I've said this many a times. It's like if a, a candidate actually took the money that he was going to use for those nasty, snarky political ads and did something for the community with social media, that the the way that word of mouth would spread could help him get real, get elected or get reelected because he's doing something good in quality. But we'd have to have reforms in place. Let me let me go through this, though, because I. Yeah. I, if I if I can leave this with with the audience, it's really worth. Before is campaign finance, okay, and it only has two components, all right. The amount of money that's given to the candidates by citizens, and blocking the amount of large money and corporate money that can be put in. During, okay, that's insider trading. Okay, while these people are in office, they have access to information. Okay, that you and I do not. And they know where stocks, either individual stocks or a, a special interest is going to go based on an insider. This allows 20% on average, not every year, 20% of Congress doubles their net worth every year. Not the same 20%. There's some people who are always on the list. There's some people that are never on the list. Okay, but you take any random group of investors and say 20% of you are going to systematically double your net worth every year. You can't find a random group of investors who's that good. Mm -hmm. Right. So you block the insider trading. That means, and there's a solution to that. Okay, it's called a blind trust. The day somebody takes office, his entire investment portfolio is given to an, a business entity, a stockbroker, an investment company, and the congressman is not allowed to know where his money is. They're required to move it around. He can be invested 80% in oil stocks the day that he takes office, but 30 days later, he will not know how much of his money has moved from oil to solar, and he's not allowed to call his broker and tell him what to do or not do. 
it is a ticket to jail for the congressman and for the broker. Okay, so everybody goes to Congress would have to go to Congress with the understanding you're not going to know where your money is. You're going to go ahead and cast your vote blind to whether or not it's going to make you rich or make you poor. All right. And there are some people like people with the last name of Bush, people with the last name Kennedy, who would not do it. Yeah. They're going, wait, my family is worth $400 million. And I've got a lot of that. And you're telling me that I've got to give this over to a broker and I can't know where that money is. I can't do that. Fine. Don't go in politics. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. You, you are not allowed to know how your vote will attack, uh, affect your personal fortunes. Okay. So that's before and that's during. Okay. Insider trading. And I'm saying you take insider trading away so that they only vote for the people they represent because they can't know how it will affect them. Okay. After is where the big money is. And this is the thing that no, nobody looks at. Okay. Half of Congress, after they leave Congress, and it's not a fixed number, become registered lobbyists in Washington, D.C. And would you care to guess how much money on average people have checked? How much money on average a person who leaves Congress would make as a registered lobbyist? 40 mil, which I know is high. I know that's high, but... Two. Two. Okay. Two mil. They typically wind up earning 14 times what they did when they were in Congress. Okay. And again, it, um, it is half, in my opinion, if it's almost half if you look only at people who become registered lobbyists, which they have to register but they can't do it until they've been out of Congress for 365 days, okay? But some people wind up working directly for Wall Street and they are functioning as lobbyists from there. They're not registered, but they are functioning as lobbyists. Others wind up working for special interest groups, right? But these people usually go into Congress as millionaires. Mm -hmm. They come out as multimillionaires, and then they wind up working, making millions of dollars, work only only a few days a year because their value is that they can talk to other Congress people and convince them. I imagine this conversation, I can't prove to you that it does happen. Guy lost his election, okay? He had been in Congress for four terms, five terms, and he, like everybody else, wound up bringing the newbies along, the freshman class who comes into Congress. Um, So he's talking to a friend who's like, oh, my God, here's George. He lost his election. He must be mortified. You know, here it is a year after redistricting, and he lost his election. And he said, how are you doing, George? So I'm doing great. I'm back from a trip in Europe. And uh, my daughter, I bought her way into Harvard, and she's dumber than a brick. And uh, I bought a chalet in Vail. And the guy says, wow, you're doing all right. He says, yeah, I'm working for XYZ Lobbyist Corporation, only five, six blocks from Congress. And the guy recognizes the name of the lobbyist firm. And he goes, wow, you're doing all right. He says, yeah, I'm going to pay 
more in taxes this year than you're going to earn all year. Okay. The guy said, oh, that good. He said, yeah. And he said, now, here's the thing. I'm, I, 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 I'm love to stay in chat with you, but I got to be, to be able to write this off. I got to tell you just this. There's a bill coming up that my firm has clients we want you to vote no on. The guy said, well, I was probably going to vote yes on that. He said, well, he said, All I'm, I'm just here to deliver the message. Okay, you should probably vote no. I says, okay. And, and, and this is off the record. He said, but I've talked to them because they're always looking for talent with the lobbyist firm. And I mentioned your name. Okay, he said, I think that if you ever leave this junk here on Capitol Hill, the hours suck, the way you get treated suck, you, there's no job security. You stop by, we'll take care of you. He leaves. Okay. Well, that guy who's a congressman is thinking about it going millions of dollars a year. Mm-hmm. I got to start now running for my election election. Okay. I'm having to raise money from my, I got no guarantee every two years I'm up for election. I got no guarantee. There's no job security and I've got job security with this firm. Mm-hmm but they want me to vote differently than I would have voted otherwise. There's $2 million sitting on the table. Mind you, this is completely legal. Mm-hmm. A specific amount of money was never mentioned and no exchange of money in exchange for the vote was ever mentioned. It is completely legal. Okay. Right. For the rest of the time that congressman is ever visited by a lobbyist from the firm that he's identified as his, as his future employer, he is going to vote the way they want him to vote. Yeah. Okay. This is how corruption works. And this could be fixed. Okay. Everybody who goes into Congress would understand that their finances are going to be under a microscope for a decade after they leave office. And they will not be allowed to enter into an employment contract, a deal, or give a speech if it has, because of the amount of money involved, the appearance of impropriety. Okay? And I'd love to have any president, Democrat or Republican, who leaves office told, you can give any speech to anybody you want, but no, you cannot collect $2 million for delivering a speech. Okay? As a federal elected official, you cannot collect more money for giving a speech than what your per diem, your daily pay would have been, plus your direct out-of-pocket expenses, okay? No multi-million dollar speeches because it looks like you are being rewarded for how you operated while you were in office. And that has the appearance, the smell of something improper. And if that politician goes, but you can't prove it, we're not proving anything. We're not charging you with a crime. We're telling you, you can't do anything. And if you choose to do it, we're going to tax it at 99.9%. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if a guy leaves office and he goes, hangs out his shingle as a lawyer, that's fine does lawyery things, that's fine. But for any contract, there is a standard rate for any contract that you would would do. 
Okay. And yes, the rate goes up with your experience and your proficiency and with how technical that is. Okay. But everybody in the lawyering business and everybody who deals with a lawyer knows what the going rate is. And the government would step in if you're collecting 10 or 20 times the going rate for what that work was. And they'll say, wait, that was a 12 page contract. Most of it was taken straight out of boilerplate copied contract, okay? You had maybe optimistically 15 or 20 hours work in there at $300 an hour. And we'll take that, we'll even double that. That's what you can charge. But no, you're not gonna get $500,000 for a five page contract for an oil company. It has the appearance. So he can work for anybody he wants to, okay? But every time He's getting into doing deals, particularly deals with industries, special interests, whom he previously legislated, okay? They're going to say, no, you can't take that much money for that little work because it has the appearance of impropriety. And here's what would happen. I love Mitt Romney's term, um, self-deportation. The crooks would leave Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. They want the money, but they don't want to risk going to jail. Well, okay. So they'd quit. Mm-hmm. And when they quit, they would be replaced by people, some smart, some stupid, some liberal, some conservative, all of them honest. Okay. And that would make a huge amount of difference. If everybody in Congress is working for the people instead of working for the people with money, We'll get a totally different product. Well, and, and the thing is, by bringing in regular people, they actually understand the plight of the person that has prescription drug needs. They understand the plight of housing. They understand what it's like to worry about losing your house or having your lights turned off. They would understand those basic things. They would understand that people don't want to be homeless, but certain things happen. They had a hospital bill that caused this to happen to them. You know, there, there, there's a bigger picture if we had more normal people. You were talking about the fact that, you know, nothing, we all complain about we want a green energy bill, but then it's really not a green energy bill. Illinois is a prime example. We had, you know, we talk about we want green energy, we want to go green. About a year ago, they passed a law about our registrations, our car registration. Regular cars and hybrids, you still pay your $178 or whatever it is. If you have an electric vehicle, well, you're not paying gasoline tax. So, but we do tax electricity, but we're not going to go there. But you're not paying the gasoline tax, which helps with the roads, yet you're driving on the roads. So you're going to have to pay $1,000 registration a year. Now, for the, for the person who's trying to be eco-friendly and buys an electric Prius, because now they have those, an electric vehicle that are, is on the lower end, I can't afford to pay for the stupid registration fee. Yeah. I mean, it's like we give you the, the and I've said this a couple of times, especially when dealing with, um, there's certain aspects of our political system and what happens afterwards, that's political theater. The airline, the whole you know, you got to go through the airport. And this goes back to kind of your story too, the no-fly zone, because the airport, well, you better not take those cuticle scissors. We're taking those, we're confiscating them. Oh, you went to first class, 
here's a serrated knife, here's a metal fork, and here's a real glass. But terrorists don't travel first class. So there's that nice door between first class and, and coach, so nobody will get there. Really? There's no, no protection. So it's an illusion. It's an illusion. And then, you know, when we talk about, we'll go back to your, your incident. So there's this big security breach. You were contacted by, you know, Secret Service and everything. And John Stewart summed your thing up beautifully because nobody, you know, no, you must have did this on the fly. Well, no, they came and talked to you. And then the four-year-old who ran, ran, broke through security at the White House. It's all theater and nobody sees it. We're, we're thinking that we are just way ahead of the game. And a lot of it's theater. Yes. Um, as it turned out, I had a natural stealth aircraft because the only flat surface was the rudder. Okay. And what the FAA said under oath was that when they looked at the tapes afterwards, knowing because they knew where I took off from and where I flew to, it, it, it just looked like a flock of birds. And NORAD, talking to Congress, said, yes, we've known for years that we have a problem with rotary wing aircraft. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, they knew about it. Okay. And they said, well, as long as nobody knows, then we're as good as being covered if nobody knows that there's this gap in the security net. All right. Um, it totally, totally stupid. Now, I'm not suggesting to anybody that the that the gap still exists. Okay, uh, Congress is pretty ticked off um, because they hadn't been told that there was that hole in the net, and congressmen and senators had spent billions of dollars of our money to protect them. Okay. And they didn't know that they were protected by illusion. All right. So they were going, wait, you never told us that what you promised us was an airtight security net. Isn't airtight. A mailman from Florida breached it. And it's only dumb luck that he wasn't loaded with explosives. Um, and yeah, they, they made a lot of people look bad and they didn't like it. Well, and, and think about it this way, you know, the whole January 6th thing. Did you ever think that you would see that happen? Um, what's funny is that the government went after me and when you, no injuries, no property damage, no intent to do any harm, okay? No attempt for monetary gain, all right? And they went after me harder then they're going after most of the January 6th insurgents who did commit breaking and entering. And, and although they say they're going after the ones who committed vandalism, the fact that they were part of the crew that committed the vandalism in my book legally puts them in that same group. They should be handled as if they had done the damage since their crew did the damage, anybody who entered the building. Now, I'm inclined to agree. Anybody who was outside the building and didn't try and enter, um, it, there, there's a real gray area, okay? Mm -hmm. But where vandalism occurred after trespassing, anybody who participated in the trespassing would be charged in any other case. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. If four kids broke into your house and deliberately set fire to it, mm -hmm. they would not only charge the one who set the fire no. with arson. All four of them that broke into the house would all be charged with arson. We've got hundreds of people who broke into the, into the Capitol building, an unknown number of them committed vandalism that's documented, okay? And yet they're, the, the district attorney is recommending for some of those people two-week sentences, and they wanted to put me away for years. But, but that is our justice system. I mean, you know, you look at the woman who is beaten by her husband, beaten and raped by her husband, and then she kills him and she ends up in jail. But then you have the Kyle Rittenhouse situation where his mother drove him across state lines with a gun. And, you know, you're driving your kid across state lines with a gun. What do you think? He's not going over there for a sleepover. He's not going over there for a party. You know that he's got intent, but yet she's not charged and he gets away with it. And I mean, that's that's our, I you agree. Know. I agree that it's a miscarriage, but I'm also aware that the jury can't deliver a verdict based on justice. They wind up being instructed to deliver a verdict based on the law. And yeah. it may very well be based on the evidence and the facts mm -hmm. and the instructions from the judge. They delivered a correct verdict that never it it shouldn't be okay anybody anybody and when i say anybody i don't mean republicans i don't mean anybody i'm not talking no. about conservatives anybody who brings a weapon to a protest should be in violation of the law mm -hmm. and should be charged okay mm -hmm. i well i am all for free speech but free speech and guns don't go no, together no and this is this is what i was going to say and, and the mother should have been charged with something because you know recently there was a school shooting where the parents were charged because of them giving him access to the gun and basically saying go do it so her driving him over there with the gun to me is the same thing it's the same thing I, I agree, but I'm sympathetic. I know the law. I know no, no, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the situation that the jury was in. Yeah. And I'm a felon, okay? Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, in my situation, I'm still ticked, and I write it up in the book. Um, it bothers me a lot that I wasn't allowed to put on the defense that I wanted to do, Okay. The federal law is deliberately and specifically skewed against civil disobedience protesters. Okay. My lawyers are not allowed to mention a concept that the law recognizes as valid called jury nullification. Okay. Jury nullification says that the jury can in that particular case set aside the law and deliver a not guilty verdict when the person is guilty when the law applied as it is is unjust all right an example of this has to do with a guy in texas under state law who was charged with possession and use of marijuana of which he was completely guilty okay and the jury nullified the law because he had glaucoma. Yeah. And he was, although although the marijuana was illegal, 
he was using it exclusively and deliberately to keep from going blind. Yeah. And the jury refused to say that in order to comply with the law, the guy was supposed to voluntarily go blind. Okay. Mm -hmm. The law doesn't the law doesn't give any specific exemption for glaucoma, but the jury could and did. But under federal law, okay, if you commit an act of civil disobedience, which is deliberately breaking the law, okay, for a greater good or for the purpose of making it, it used to be your lawyers could could explain to the jury what civil what jury nullification is. They're saying you're allowed to look at what this person was trying to do, why they were trying to do it. You're allowed to factor in the fact that he intended and the result was no harm, no damage, no injury. Okay. And if you believe that the good that he did or intended to do outweighs the fact that there was no harm, although he did break the the law, you can come back with a not guilty verdict. They're not allowed to tell that to the jury. Okay, the judge can bald faced lie to the jury and say, if you find A, B and C, you must come back with a guilty verdict and never tell them that the law says you can consider whether or not it would be an act of injustice to put a person in jail for a, a decision that they made for the public good. Okay. The judge won't say it. The lawyer can't say it. He can't even describe it as far as its characteristics are going to go. The jury is required to intuitively arrive at this over and above the instructions from the judge, which were specifically, it's you can only look at the law and the facts. That's the only way you can decide. Well, it's not true. And the federal law explicitly says it's not true. And you won't be taught in school when you're in civics, if you're in a school where such a thing is taught, okay, you will not be taught as a juror you can go above the judge's instructions and come back with a not guilty verdict if you can see that a guilty verdict would be a miscarriage of actual justice. Okay. Mm -hmm. And my, my judge would have had, I, and this I wound up having to plea bargain. Okay. Unfortunately, I wanted to go to trial, but I had to plea bargain because once this became apparent. My attorney said, the judge that you got will ask every juror going in if they will swear to follow her instructions. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the deck was going to be 100% stacked against me. I didn't stand a chance of getting that juror who could intuit that this was a travesty of justice. The judge is already going to stack the deck 100% with people who have promised to follow her instructions. Okay. So I didn't even have a random jury. She is allowed, the, the, the prosecutor is allowed to kick six jurors just because he doesn't like the color of their nose. Okay. Prosecution is allowed to kick 10 jurors 
for no reason whatsoever. Okay, just because we the the way we think they might lean on the case. But the judge has an unlimited number of people that they can discard from the jury. So I had no chance of getting an impartial jury. And in my case, I would have been protected by federal sentencing guidelines, which would have limited the judge to, depending on how they interpreted it, somewhere between zero and six or possibly three to 10 months. Because I had no priors. Mm-hmm. There was no property damage. There was no injury. There was no intent. Right. There was no malice. All of the factors that go into calculating the sentencing were in my favor. Unfortunately, my crime was so unique that sentencing guidelines did not apply. And it was decided, it was decided by a federal agency that no precedents established in sentencing guidelines would apply to my case, which meant the judge could have thrown the book at me with a face value of two felonies and four misdemeanors, okay, for a total of nine years in prison. Oops. Yeah. If, you, if you're selling cocaine in the District of Columbia, you're covered by, by sentencing guidelines, okay, mm-hmm. but I wasn't. And uh, so I got four months which was not a bad deal, all things considered. Um, I I did time in Federal Detention Center, Miami, um, and I was surprised how well I fit in. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I hear the federal prison system's a little bit better than the regular prison system, so... Well, the state system in Florida is is designed to be a hellhole. They don't have air conditioning in the prisons in Florida. I had a school in New Orleans in the 80s that didn't have air conditioning, so I can kind of understand. Yeah. So, I mean, they deliberately, I'm sorry, they, they deliberately torture the prisons in the Florida state system. And you're right, the federal system is a lot different, a lot better. So this ending is going to be a little bit different because, well, <laughs> it's a long podcast and part two will be in our next episode. So I'm just not even going to make a summation because that it's actually saved for the final ep- final part of part two. So if you want to be on the show, you know where to find me. Email Donna, D-A-U-N-A at better2podcast.com. You can also send questions, concerns, comments to me there as well. And if you've missed an episode of the podcast, you can check it out at better2podcast.com. All the episodes as well as our social links are there. Anyway, I hope you stay tuned for the next episode because that's where Doug will spill some more beans. So anyway, take care and catch you next time. Bye. The Better Two Podcast is mixed, edited, and produced by Rich Zai of Third Ear Audio Productions. 